1: Thank you all for being here for today's Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nigan, and we're really very happy to have you with us Uh, in the middle of a week that is bursting, bursting with important uh, news in Georgia and across the country as well. Um, I'm joined here in the Midtown Atlanta studios of GPB Radio by former Congressman, Democratic Congressman Buddy Darden from Cobb County served in the uh, the 7th District seat back when Cobb County was uh, solidly Democrat the first time around and for the longest time <laughs> until it became Republican for a while, at least, buddy. And, Bill, it's great to be back. I've missed being here. I know. We've missed you, too. Uh, and so thank you for uh, joining us again. You and I are holding the fort down alone here on 14th Street, buddy, uh, because we've got our far-flung network Uh, Activated so that we can bring you Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent, who joins us from Washington. Hi, Tamar.
0: You're making us sound like Power Rangers or something. The force is activated.
1: <laughs> well, it's exciting that we have you all coming in from far-flung places. Uh, how are you, tomorrow? How are you doing on a very busy week? I know they're in recess, but given all the news this week about the uh, awful shootings, uh, you're probably scrambling to keep up with how George's uh, delegation is dealing with all this.
0: Yeah, I was, I was just saying how this has been a... You know, not the quiet recess that it, it usually is. So, you know, sad news to be covering. Yeah.
1: Well, we're very glad you're with us to help uh, sort through some of what's going on today, as a matter of fact. And Martha Zoller is joining us from the Gainesville studios of WDUN Radio, where she is back doing her daily radio show, her talk show. Martha, it's a pleasure to have you. We should point out to people... That you work with, uh, uh, you were David Perdue's what, um, constituent, did you do run his constituent services operation? You were, tell us exactly what yeah, that title I was. I was the
2: state policy director right. and I managed the field team. Okay.
1: Um, how's the radio show going?
2: The radio show is going great and, um, you know, I'm having fun every day. This week has been tough um, yeah. talking about some of the stories of what happened, but really how I approached it is I really just let people talk about how they were feeling Uh, The first couple of days, because, you know, it's 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 a lot of grief. People are feeling a lot of grief.
3: Bill, everybody I know in Gainesville is delighted that Martha's back on the air. Yeah, sure. How long
1: did you you do that show before you went to the dark side and got in politics itself?
2: Uh, About 18 years.
1: Okay, right. Okay. well, we're very happy that you have become part of the Political Rewind uh, panels. uh, So we'll continue to want to have you on the show. Uh, Let me we're going to start talk a lot. uh, President Trump, of course has been in Dayton already uh, since this morning. He's headed to El Paso. He's making stops at both cities that had these tragic um, massacres uh, over the last weekend. And, of course, he was met by some protesters in Dayton. And uh, uh, before he left for Dayton, he spoke to reporters uh, before getting on the helicopter to go out to joint uh, air, Force air base um, uh What am I blocking, buddy? Andrews. Andrews. Thank you, Tamar. (laughs) Andrews Air Force, what used to be known as Andrews Air Force Base. Uh, Tamar, let's listen to a soundbite of the president when he was asked about gun control. The question first was whether he would support legislation that would in any way ban or limit the acquisition of assault weapons he answers that question and goes on and, and, and talks more about what he would support.
3: You can do your own polling, and there's no political appetite from it from the standpoint of legislature, but I will uh, certainly bring that up. I'll bring that up as one of the points. There's a great appetite, and I mean a very strong appetite, for background checks. And I think we can bring up background checks like we've never had before. I think both Republican and Democrat are getting close to a bill on, to doing something on
1: background checks. So, Tamar, again, first he was asked whether he'd support an assault weapons ban, and his answer to that was, I think there's no appetite for it, and then went on to say he would, in fact, support background checks. Now, tomorrow, when he says he thinks Democrats and Republicans are getting together on background checks, uh, we need to discuss that because— What seems to be in the mix right now is red flag legislation more than background check legislation. Have I got that right?
0: Yeah, I mean, both of those proposals have been floating around Capitol Hill, I mean, for several years, but especially over the last Eight months since Democrats took the reins of the House. They passed a, you know, quote, universal background check bill back in February that the Senate has not taken up because Republicans say it goes way too far. The red flag legislation, as you mentioned, is is something that does appear to be gaining some steam. But I think a lot of Republicans, as we've seen in the state of Georgia this week, are are very much kind of tiptoeing around it. I think a lot of folks are waiting to see the details. I think they're waiting to see a more forceful um, pitch from the president because in the past he he has seemingly endorsed pieces of gun control legislation only later to, to change his mind so I think folks really want to see where he lands on this
1: buddy well
3: frankly I'm not optimistic at all about the state of Georgia this has got to be at the federal level because you remember our governor got in a pickup truck and uh, got his gun pointed at his prospective son-in-law and that was an issue in the last race so we need to forget about what the state might do. And look at what can be done to federal Well, level. but that's
1: what I mean. But Tamara is suggesting that that our congressional delegation is uncertain. And I think to some extent she what she said, buddy, is they need cover from the president when the president says in an offhand interview, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, essentially just talking to reporters. Oh, I think I'm for uh, some form of, of uh, you know, uh, a check background check. That they're not quite – given that he said that before, I think our members, like a lot of congressmen around the country, aren't certain that he's got their backs on that quite yet. Well, I think that once he comes
3: out with a definitive statement saying, I am for this, I'm against this, I think they will all fall in line. I don't think there's a yeah. question that, uh, that they will line up with the president once he makes a definitive statement. But as you know, a couple of times he's taken one step and then taking two steps back. And so he needs to clarify exactly what his position is. And he appears to be uh, leaning toward coming
1: towards some type of definite proposal. Martha, do you believe that the president this time around is uh, really ready to do something?
2: No, I think that he will. I think that it all depends on what you mean by red flag. Or what the details are on background check you know it's it's the terminology can mean different things to different people right. as we know, but in fairness to to buddy's point about the state is that before any of this happened and 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 kind of uh, you know informed by things that had happened before in this legislative session in our state we prioritize public safety school safety, they've increased funding for security updates in schools and they doubled the funding for mental health funding in high schools. Now that's before any of this happened. So, you know, there is an emphasis on public safety on the state level. Um it may not be what people call gun control, but again, as you know, Bill, people have different definitions of what that is, too.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about red flag uh, legislation uh, because tomorrow it there are there are different versions of what that means, right? Um Do you have any sense yet what – Lindsey Graham, for instance, wants to give – I think his measure calls for funding for states that want to enact red flag, and I'm not quite sure what that funding would accomplish. Do you know what Lindsey Graham's proposal is?
0: I don't know the specifics of that, but it's. I know that Lucy McBath, yes. who is the, the Democrat representing the 6th District in Georgia, a big gun control advocate, she lost her son to gun violence in 2012, she introduced a companion version in the House in February. So that's interesting. You know, if, if this is the approach the president wants to take, that could present a, a pretty bipartisan route. You know, my, my kind of understanding of the broad contours of that is that, you know, family members, law enforcement would be able to to... Petition, you know, for law enforcement to remove a gun owner from somebody who's deemed to be a threat to themselves. They go to a judge.
1: The the, the, they would go to a judge who would then determine whether the concern was valid and and should lead to a a, a, you know a person having a gun taken away from or not being able to get get a gun. That's essentially red flag in the broadest terms, right?
3: Well, Bill, what I've heard about uh, the proposal. as it now stands, might seriously have prevented the uh, Dayton, Ohio situation because they have found numerous instances in which that young man showed a lot of instability and a proclivity toward this type of conduct. I'm willing to go along with anything that would improve the situation.
2: Well, and, you know, we've got to untie some of these HIPAA regulations as it relates to people that are in that 18 to 24 year-old age range and that's a whole can of worms that has to be opened up and looked at and debated because you know some of these people that this young man interacted with in the Dayton case they were they were limited by what they could say because of HIPAA regulations and other things like that
1: Um tomorrow let's also uh, uh, deal with the fact that There is is a partisan divide here to some extent. I mean, there does seem more—Dayton and El Paso seem to have really mobilized people on both sides of the aisle to realize they better do something this time. Finally, we're saying something had better happen. But the divide comes when many Democrats, more than Republicans, would like to see a ban on assault weapons— And you heard the president in that soundbite say he doesn't think there's an appetite for it. And Republicans are now saying that maybe red flag is where they can go to seek. I hate to say this, but to some extent safe shelter with the country really angry about what's happening with guns. So there is that partisan split, right?
0: Exactly. And there's a lot of maneuvering, you know, that, that needs to go on. You know, there, there, this does appear to be a moment right now. And, and who knows how long this moment will last where Republicans are feeling pressure to, to do something. I think, um, there, you know, on the Democratic side, there, there's this question of, ooh, you know, now in this moment, how much can we extract out of Republicans? There's also the question, how, do they overstep? And where is, where is that line exactly? Um, you know, back in 2012 and 2013, after the Sandy Hook shooting, there was a real movement to, to get some sort of bipartisan compromise on background checks. And, and there were two senators, um, Republican Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania and Joe Manchin from West Virginia, a Democrat who worked painstakingly to try and get a compromise on that. And they fell five votes short. And that was when Democrats were in charge of the Senate. Yeah. So it, it's just going to prove to show how hard this is going to be. And given how quickly the news cycle moves, given the you know attention of the president and his Twitter feed, it might be hard to kind of sustain that outrage to get to a point where both sides are willing to agree when they return. After so,
1: while the ball, ball is in your court, I made a statement before, and I and I want to hear whether you think I was right. And and I think essentially you you said a version of this. The Republicans in the Georgia delegation have been quiet about this, as you pointed out. And one thing they're going to need to be able to start, David Perdue right now is meeting with reporters here in Atlanta and certainly being asked about where he stands on red flag, assault weapons and whatever. Our Stephen Fowler is at that news conference, so is uh, Greg Bluestein, and I'm, I'm hoping we'll hear something from uh, Stephen Fowler before the end of the hour. But what I was going to say, uh, tomorrow is... They are really the Republicans in the delegation, depending on the president, to protect them on this. Right. He's got to make a strong statement and stick with it before they're going to be willing to go too far in their statements.
0: Exactly. You know, a lot of these Republican lawmakers were elected, you know, on on gun rights positions that closely mirrored what the NRA has been talking about for years. You know, that said the president is so popular with the Republican base that, that if he is to forcefully come out in favor of a specific legislative proposal, I do think that gives them the cover. The big fear right now, given how gerrymandered our congressional districts are everywhere, you know, a lot of these guys fear primary challengers more than anything. So sure. I think there's a very acute fear that if they back a gun control measure or something that's seen as gun control, that they could be challenged from their right.
1: Hey, Mar- Martha, you said that you've turned your show over in, in large measure for at least the first couple days after the shootings to the voices of your listeners. Did they talk to you about whether they want gun control measures of any sort? Was that part of their uh, conclu- the conclusions they reached coming out of the weekend?
2: You know, they talked much more about mental health issues and having that kind of um, access for people that need it. They're concerned about the slippery slope. I mean, this is a very conservative listening area. They're concerned about a slippery slope. Um, And I think that the challenge that we have completely on all of this is that what Republicans, it sounds to me, you know, usually on big issues like this, it's Democrats that want a comprehensive solution and Republicans are kind of caught up in the one or two things. It's kind of reversed in this because these two shootings were very different. The perpetrators were very different. They didn't fit the mold uh, that is per- perpetuated out in the media. So a lot of the things that are happening here is now Republicans are more people that want a comprehensive that if they're going to give up anything on magazine size or 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 really being a clear definition of what assault rifles are, they want to know that you've got um, mental health in there and that there are other things involved. Um, related to the issue.
1: Buddy, that seems to be something that Republicans, and the president did this himself, like to talk about in the aftermath of mass shootings. Uh, mental health, need, we need to be sure that we're dealing with the mental health issues that we're seeing about the soundness of the minds of people who want guns, um, therefore background checks. But video games is another one that Republicans like to seize on violent video games.
3: Well, first of all, I think everybody believes it ought to be some background checks of some sort, including uh, a person's mental capacity. But the president said something I thought was very, very interesting, and I think this goes to the heart of it. He said that, that he didn't see much appetite for doing something about assault weapons. And what he means by that is that in his base, there's no appetite at all for doing something about assault weapons. then. Giving you complete disclosure, I have a totally opposite view. I just don't see any reason that a civilian needs to have an assault rifle with 250-round capacity. But, again, that's my opinion. I realize that's not the prevailing one. But at the same time, I don't think you'll see anything on assault weapons, especially when nothing happened after Sandy Hook. When nothing happened after Sandy Hook, that's when I
1: despair the fact that I don't think anything seriously is going to come out of this Congress. Um, Let me share with all of you – I I was doing a little research on uh, data about gun violence in this country for the show this morning. I came across a RAND Corporation poll – or a study – which was uh, done, and they did it for Every Town for Gun Safety, which, of course, is Michael Bloomberg's anti-gun organization. But the RAND Corporation certainly does uh, straightforward, objective kind of uh, surveys. Here, here are figures that they release, and then I'm going to ask you all uh, to weigh in, because I think these figures weigh to both sides of the debate that we're having about what to do about guns. So... From 2009 to 2017, there were at least 173 mass shootings in the United States. A mass shooting, in their, by their definition, is any shooting which more than three people are killed. 2017 was the deadliest year on record for mass shootings. Four times as many people shot in mass shootings in 2017 than the average of the eight years prior. In at least one third of mass shootings, the shooter was legally prohibited from possessing firearms at the time of the shooting. Now that's significant uh, because it suggests that stricter gun laws may not <coughs> excuse me, make a difference in all of this. In half of the mass shootings, the shooter exhibited warning signs indicating that they possessed uh, they posed a danger to themselves or to others. Their red flag it goes to red flag. Uh, we can go on with this. Many of them, the majority of them were related to domestic or family violence, um, and we can go on. But the the data tomorrow weighs in on both sides.
0: Sure, but, the, you know, this is an issue. You know, gun ownership is something that's so kind of deeply held on, on both sides. And, and as I was saying earlier, you know, because of the way that our officials in the House are, are elected um, and how not uncompetitive these districts are, you see lawmakers from both sides being forced to play to their base because they're so scared of, of primary sites. And and this, like in so many other issues, it feels like the middle ground is evaporating a little bit. I also want to say on Capitol Hill, you know, we were talking about comprehensive intensive gun you know gun legislation and how once you start pulling in multiple elements to any kind of issue on capitol hill it makes it astronomically more complicated so given harder to pass totally and so given how hard it is to do even the most basic legislating on the hill the the more factors you throw into this the harder it is to get something passed
3: moth and i were reminiscing a little while ago because we both grew up in rural areas and what in fact Hers was not rural anymore, but mine is still rural down in Hancock County. And it was quite common back then for most everybody to have a firearm in the pickup truck or a gun rack in the back and so forth. But these, again, weren't weapons of uh, mass destruction. These were just simply shotguns or rifles or maybe a pistol or two. But uh, I think the sophistication of the weapons, too, is something that's quite scary to people like me. Well, Mark? I
2: thought it was interesting. I mean, I've been reading extensively about the victims and the families, and um, there's one family, uh, the Acondos, who their their son and daughter-in-law were the ones that shielded their two-month-old baby in El Paso, and I thought it was very interesting that, first of all, they were very Charleston-esque in the fact that they have they have forgiven the person they think that you know, he must have been possessed by something terrible and that, they're, that that hating this person isn't going to help them. But secondly, they said, the father said, this conversation shouldn't be about race or immigration, but about mental illness, because anybody that would do something like this was insane. So I thought it was interesting to see that sort of ability to forgive in such a short time.
1: Well, um, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I, I, I think... That's one of the questions I want to ask about the mood the country is in in the days after these shootings. So by that, I mean, certainly President Trump has been uh, attacked repeatedly for the kind of rhetoric he was using to describe immigrants. I mean, that's been going on for, for ever since he first came down the escalator to run for PrEP, make his announcement he was running for president. And in the aftermath of the shootings, uh, there were many people who said that uh, his uh, his demeaning uh, demonizing rhetoric played a role in all of this and and so Martha I, I wonder you know now the president says, of course, in the aftermath of the shootings, his Democratic, the Democratic presidential candidates are going after him for their own political purposes. You said again, to go back to your listeners that they had a lot on their minds about what happened over the weekend. Tell us, if they, if they weren't talking about what kind of gun r- regulations they think we might need, how are they processing what happened? To what extent did they think the president might have had a role in this? Uh, to what extent did they think he was being unfairly blamed? Share that a, a little bit with us. Yeah,
2: I mean, my listeners overwhelmingly think that he was being unfairly blamed and that in the light of him trying to take a different tone in the statement that he gave, the speech that he gave, On Monday morning, that you know, from that that there's fundraising letters going out on the Democrat side related to this, and it's too soon. You know, we don't have any ability to wait a few days and let things settle anymore. And I realize that they've got a very competitive primary, but what my listeners are saying is they see it as a more one-sided thing right now. I'm not saying they've always said that, but for this week, what they perceive is that the president is trying to change the tone and that his opponents, his Democrat opponents, won't let him do that.
1: You know, buddy, the New York Times uh, this week, this has been a kind of an underreported story. I mean, it's gotten some attention, but I haven't seen a lot of it here in the Georgia media. The New York Times got into a lot of trouble earlier this week because after the president made the statement that uh, Martha just referred to Uh, Say he did use the expression, we've got to stop white extremism, white supremacy, whatever words he used. Uh, He said it's time to bring an end to hate or whatever. And the New York Times had a front page headline that said Trump urges unity versus racism. And there were howls of protest from uh, from many of the readers of the New York Times who found it – uh, strange that the New York Times was somehow giving Trump credit for being a uniter. And, uh, in fact, the Times very quickly changed that headline uh, because they themselves felt it was inappropriate. That, that's just an example of how terribly uh, uh, emotional, on edge we are over what's going on right now. Well, I understand why the president would like to change the tone
3: but it's the tone that he himself set. And so there's an old expression about if you make your bed, then you've got to lie in it or something to that effect. And in all respect to the president of the United States, uh, I'm glad to see him change his, his tune and change his tone. But at the same time, he's the one that generally set the table here. And so you reap what you sow. I hope he completely changes or I hope he does a 180. I hope he becomes the uh, great facilitator in, in chief. However, his strong suit, as you know, is not uh, being someone to go around and feel their pain, uh, as as you say. So he's got a tough job in front of him. I wish him well. I'd love to see him unite the country. But at the same time, uh, he's reaping, in my opinion, what he's sown in the past. And you just can't make one statement
1: and totally turn everything around, even though I hope he does try to do it. To my Democratic presidential candidates, you know, better O'Rourke, of course, Comes from El Paso, and he certainly has been in the news a lot lately. I don't doubt for a second Better O'Rourke's sincerity when he has uh, talked pretty emotionally about this uh, terrible tragedy in his own community. Um, But we are in the middle of a presidential race, and so it isn't totally inappropriate to look at how the Democratic presidential candidates are responding with somewhere even in the very backs of their minds an understanding of how – what the impact this could have on their presidential campaigns.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's you know you've seen some some interesting things in the aftermath of all of this. Julian Castro, um, you know, another candidate from from Texas, got in trouble last night for tweeting the names of of you know El Paso area donors who. Um, You know, who had given the donation to to the president Um, and that sparking, you know, why are you further dividing, you know, this country at a time, you know, in such a a raw moment? Well, yeah,
1: the Trump campaign claimed that Castro was endangering the lives of those donors, which uh, was an interesting response. But, yeah, that was an interesting example of all this. Um, How do you think tomorrow? Do we have any way of judging how this is going to play into the Democratic presidential race?
0: I mean, I think, you know, the question for me is how long this, this truly endures yeah. as, you know, a topic of discussion. I just got an email. I'm pulling up my, <laughs> pulling up my inbox now from Everytown for Gun Safety. So, yeah. again, the, the Michael Bloomberg funded group yeah. mentioning um, how they are going to be holding a gun safety presidential forum on Saturday in Des Moines. Um, mm. And they have something like 10 presidential candidates. I see Biden on this list, Buttigieg, Harris. Klobuchar, Sanders, Warren, so kind of all the the front runners who are going to be talking about this. The question is whether in a week from now, if we're still going to be talking about this, if this sparks anyone to change their mind or offer anything new, or if like so many of the other mass shootings we've seen, the topic changes in a few days. All right,
1: uh, we got to get to a break. But here's a really interesting item. Tom Faust just sent this to me. Eric Erickson, who, of course, we've talked about on this show several times in the last couple of weeks, who at first was a never-Trumper and eventually and most recently uh, endorsed uh, Trump for re-election, invited Vice President Pence to be part of his big conference of conservatives last weekend here in Atlanta. But here's what Eric Erickson – I assume, Tom, this was a tweet. Here's what Eric Erickson said. It's days like this I miss George W. Bush. So I found that interesting for a guy who has gone 180 degrees on uh, President Trump. I haven't seen much of President Trump himself. in in, uh, I didn't get to see much of what he had to say in Dayton, but uh, we'll soon find out how he handled himself in both Dayton and El Paso cities where an awful lot of people really said they wished he'd stay away. But Eric Erickson's tweet... Is an interesting one. All right, we got a lot more to talk about on Political Rewind today, including a great story that Tamar Hallerman broke in the AJC about the sixth and seventh congressional districts races. We'll get to all that and more after these messages. You know, selling a car can be a hassle, but donating it is a whole different story. Let us take it off your hands or off your driveway and turn it into public radio, and maybe even a tax deduction. Hi, I'm Kyle Rizdahl, the host of Marketplace, and here is how to donate. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or donate securely online at gpb.org
0: slash cars. And thanks. On the next Fresh Air, actor Gina Davis and director Maria Geis talk about the shortage of opportunities for women in Hollywood. Davis founded her Institute on Gender in Media Geist's activism led to an EEOC investigation into systemic discrimination against women directors. They're featured in the new documentary, This Changes Everything. Join us.
3: Fresh air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and online at gpbnews.org.
1: We're back, Uh, Buddy Darden in the studio with me, Uh, Martha Zoller in the studios of WDUN in Gainesville, where she does her daily radio show, talk show, and in Washington, Tamar Hallerman, the AJC's Washington correspondent. So Tamar, we know that it is not illegal for a member of Congress, a member of the House to live outside her or his own district, but of course... Anybody who lived through the sixth district congressional race when John Ossoff faced off against Karen Handel knows that the fact that Ossoff lived outside of the district was an issue that Republicans jumped on gleefully and made a major, major uh, part of her campaign against him. Now. We come to your story that uh, I saw the first time early this morning on the AJC.com website. What did you learn about residents, uh, about candidates in the sixth and seventh districts in Georgia? Tamara, have we lost you? Oh, hello. Hi, are you there? Yeah, I hear you. you. Hear me? Yeah.
0: Perfect. Um, you know, there, there's a ton of candidates that are, that are running in both districts now that they're politically competitive. And I found that between the two, the sixth and the seventh, um, at least six of the candidates running don't live in the districts they're running to represent. And then I found another two who had only recently moved to the districts right before announcing their candidacy, which I just found to be a very surprising number, given the kind of grief that John Ossoff got in 2017. And,
1: and these are Democrats and Republicans, of course.
0: Yes, exactly. And some who have been elected to office before, you know, John Eves, the former Fulton County Commission chairman, moved up to Gwinnett earlier this year, posted a photo with his uh, new license plate (laughs) on his car with Gwinnett County, uh, announced his run a a week later. And some are newcomers who, um, you know, especially in the 7th District, which is an open seat now that Rob Woodall has announced his retirement, Um, folks coming out for the first time.
2: Um, well, and the problem, too, is consultants will tell you that's not a big deal, you know, that you don't have to live in your district and and that sort of thing. But it does matter. I mean, yes, it is technically okay because they used to move, you know, they still move the lines around every 10 years, obviously, but it is a big issue, I think. I think if you're, you know, as a rule of thumb, you ought to live in the district you're running for.
3: I agree 100% with Martha. We finally found something that we are absolutely (laughs) sure about. And, and Martha, that's the great thing about Gainesville District. You've always had somebody uh, from the Gainesville District living uh, in Gainesville. Now, there was one exception to that in 2002 when Phil Gingren and I wanted to uh, go to Congress. uh, Phil from the State Senate and me to make a a return. uh, Speaker Murphy put us both out of the district. And so that the line ran in front of my house, and uh, it also took fill out. So we uh, had to had to uh, suffer through that, but uh, it really didn't make any difference. But in the end, I totally and absolutely 100% agree with you. Unfortunately, the Constitution, which governs this, does not say that you only have to be a resident of the state. Yeah, right. Uh, and for for example. Um, Doug Collins could run from the district in Savannah if he wanted to, and Buddy Carter could run uh, from the district uh, up in Rome. Yeah. And so all we've got
1: to do is live in the state at the time of the election. So, uh, Tamara, you talk about it up in the 7th District that Renee Unterman, who, of course, is running for that 7th District congressional seat, uh, came up with a nickname for one of her primary opponents, uh, Lynn Hamrick, who... Who has going to self-fund a good deal of her campaign, uh, but has also raised some money calling her that Buckhead lady because Hamrick's a former Home Depot executive. Her husband's a, uh, a major player in Arthur Blank's corporation. Uh, but she finally, I mean, to get around it in her case, she was in Buckhead. But what did she do?
0: She began renting a, a place in, in Duluth, um, and, and there's plenty of others. As you know, some of these districts, especially when we're talking about Metro Atlanta, where there are several congressional districts, there there is an issue sometimes of folks even thinking they live in the district, but maybe they live on the opposite side of the street, or there's some confusion about stuff like that. So there's one there's one guy, Mark Gonzalez, who's a Republican businessman running in the seventh, who who lives literally a couple a couple hundred yards. From the boundary of the seventh, and his campaign spokesman mentioned he's he put his house on the market and plans to move into the district tomorrow.
1: Tomorrow, I, I don't mean to uh, to uh, contradict you in any way or, or to throw dirt on what you're saying, but if I'm running for Congress and I'm not sure which district my house really is in on which side of the street. I'm not sure that I'd be a really good candidate. <laughs> sure, sure.
3: I think it's ironic that the state requirements for the Georgia legislature and in most other states are far more strict about residency than, of course, is the Congress, which is governed by
1: the United yeah, States Constitution. Martha, one of the other things, and Buddy mentioned it while we were in the break, but but it's actually in tomorrow's uh, article. Uh, Martha, uh, Tamar points out that uh, Democrat David Scott who's uh, been uh, in the house for a long time now is he's never lived in this. He lives uh, in East Atlanta outside of the district. So it does work on both sides of the uh, partisan and divide. We,
2: we used to jokingly call his the Pasquale Perez district, you know, because, because Pasqual Perez famously got lost on the way to a ball game one time yeah. and they've moved the line so many times yeah. <laughs> for David Scott. Sometimes he gets lost.
1: He, uh, uh, Buddy just made a circle with his hands. Pressed. he was new to Atlanta, and he kept driving around 285. He couldn't figure out on a, where the heck the stadium was and how to get off of 285. He missed a game. He missed yeah. a game where it's supposed right. to pitch. So, Martha, so Martha, if the Asov camp, this was such a big deal in Karen Handel's race. It's been a big deal for Lucy McBath. Uh, the uh, Handel people during their uh, campaign, argued that she actually was a resident of Tennessee because that's where her husband lives. And in that case, they also went after her because they said she did not deserve the uh, tax break she got for living within the 6th the, the district. But, but beyond that, if we've got this going on on both sides of the equation here, if we got so many candidates who don't live in the district— does so that kind of nullify this as an issue moving forward?
2: You you are assuming that political campaigns are logical, okay? <laughs> I mean, you know, you had Michael Williams with the letter yesterday, yeah. the former gubernatorial candidate, talking about the bad advice he took and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And look, people are going to do what they think it takes to win. But my thing that I don't understand, qualifying is not until, what, March or April next year, Mm-hmm. You can move. You get a, you know, do what Lynn Holbro- Holbrook did, and and move into the district, uh, so that it's not an issue. There's plenty of time to do that.
1: Yeah. By the way, uh, tomorrow you also looked at the larger picture, and you found that two dozen members, or nearly two dozen, five percent of the House actually live outside their districts. Uh, as of 2017. So it's not a problem unique to Georgia, or it's not a it's not a phenomenon unique to Georgia.
2: Well, they all live in D.C. anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and going off of what Martha was saying, look, campaigns will take any opening they can get. You've seen, you know, we've seen scenarios with certain consultants who were throwing a ton of money into ads, you know, lambasting John Ossoff for not living in the district, who now are backing candidates in, in this current race who live outside the district. Right. So it depends on what's advantageous at that moment. That the way politics well
1: good reporting people can read that uh your report at ajc.com it's uh it's there for everybody to take a look at uh buddy darden uh, uh, breaking news uh in the political world late this morning we learned that sarah riggs amico who is the operator of one of the nation's biggest car haulers trucks that take cars around the country um, who ran for as a Democrat for lieutenant governor and lost, who has filed papers to form an exploratory committee. We think she wants to run as a Democrat for the U.S. Senate seat, now held by uh, David Perdue. Her company has now filed for bankruptcy and— um, they're deeply in debt. A lot of it has to do with pension debt, which just a couple of years ago was like up at $1 billion. Most of their employees are unionized. Uh, She's probably going to have to give up major control of the company. Uh, At least that's the, the probability based on what we're seeing from the filing. So this is a significant issue for a woman who's Who, during the lieutenant governor's campaign, talked often about, I'm a businesswoman, I know how to run a business. What do you think this tells us? We're sorry. Nobody wants to see somebody's business uh, falter that way. But what does it say to us about the the likelihood that she's going to be able to mount a particularly effective Senate campaign in the midst of all this? Well, what it tells me is I think I would see if I couldn't get my—
3: financial affairs in order, because generally speaking, if someone can't manage their own personal business, you don't want that person up there trying to manage the business of of the government. And while I certainly wish her no ill uh, fate as a result of this, I think she needs to stay home and look after a business, because we're talking about a lot of money here, and I think she's demonstrated talent in the past that she needs to be looking after that uh, company and being sure that these workers are taken care of. Again, this is her decision to make, but I think uh, this is certainly by no means a disqualifying factor. I don't mean to say that, but I think that uh, she would be better served to look after her her own fiscal affairs and her own business and try to get this straightened out Martha,
1: if you were the consultant for either the Ted Terry or Teresa Tomlinson campaign, would you urge your candidates to make a particularly big issue out of this? Or would you suggest they stay away from it because it may not make a difference to voters? How how would you tend to play this?
2: I think stay away from it for now, but keep it in your back pocket. Okay. Because, uh, you know, what what I think Ms. Amico is going to say is, uh, you know, uh, David Perdue had you know, issues in his career where companies didn't last, you know, that was, that's when you have a long career in business, you have wins and you have losses, right? Um, And so there have also been since the Great Recession, there have been a number of political candidates that have been successful in running even when they had some, you know, differences in their business background. So if I were a consultant in that area, I would say, you know, wait and see. Now, as a friend, I would give her the same advice that Buddy gave her is that you know, you're know you a young woman, you've got plenty of opportunities to run, get your house in order, and then come back and run because it's a much more compelling story if you fix the problem and then you come back. Because we got lots of problems to fix in the federal government. If you can show you can do it in your personal life or in your business life, it's a very compelling story. Uh, that's
1: a really interesting point. Uh, Tamara, do you think that... If you're Sarah Riggs Amico, do you reconsider whether you really ought to run for Senate when you've got to deal with this business problem?
0: I mean, it, it certainly is a moment where I think she does need to to kind of figure out what she wants to do. Initially, it was looking like she really was going to go ahead and, and jump into the race. Yep. You know, something I've talked about a lot is, is how much time Democrats have right now to really build up a formidable campaign against David Perdue, get that name recognition, get the money in line that you're going to need Um, So time is certainly money here, and she'll need to make a decision quickly. Um, You know, if she does jump in the race, I'm going to be curious how forthcoming she is with discussing this bankruptcy. You know, you saw Stacey Abrams last year on the campaign talk about some of her personal debt that she had and kind of used it as an opportunity to talk about, you know, personal responsibility and and kind of making priorities in your life. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how much she wants to talk about something like pension reform As an issue,
3: yeah. Not only that, I'd be reluctant to donate if I were a prospective donor. I would be reluctant to donate to someone who uh, has
1: this type of financial problem. All right, let's do this. We got more to talk about, Uh, but we're going to take our final break of the show, and we'll come back and we'll talk about the the very unique apology. Uh, It's already been mentioned once on the show of a former candidate for governor of Georgia who is now saying, I never should have run for that office. We'll get to that in just a moment on Political Rewind. Hi, I'm Ross Terrell, GPB's reporter here in Atlanta, but I cover more than the state's largest city. I tell stories about the problems farmers in the southern part of Georgia are facing, and I report on transportation issues affecting the 13 metro Atlanta counties.
2: We believe express lanes is our way to manage the amount of traffic or demand to give those users the reliable trip times that they're looking for.
1: Stick with us to hear these stories and more. GPB News, stand with the
0: facts. Millions of people watched the U.S. women's soccer team win the World Cup. Now will they watch the Women's Soccer League here at home?
2: It's very important to stay dedicated, to stay strong for those women. You know, we just have to stay the course and do what we do and just show up every day.
0: I'm Ari Shapiro. That story plus the president's visits to El Paso and Dayton after the shootings there. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: Four till seven today on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. You know, we're all about transparency here on Political Rewind, and we always like to take you a little behind the scenes. During that uh, break, uh, after speaking about Sarah Riggs and Miko's bankruptcy, Buddy Darden leaned over to me and he said, see, I'm showing restraint. I didn't talk about Donald Trump's many bankruptcies during that <laughs> segment of the the show. You didn't, Buddy. You're a very fair-minded guy. Thank you. <laughs> uh, tomorrow." Michael Williams placed last in the Republican gubernatorial primary race. He and one of the most notorious episodes in the entire campaign was when he took a deportation bus to North Georgia. It was scurrilously anti-Hispanic in the messaging on the bus. Of course, it became a terrible folly for him. The bus broke down. Uh, He is now apologizing saying that he uh, should never have run for governor, that he should have instead found a candidate who he could really back. And he's telling his supporters, I apologize to you. I allowed my pride, ego, and bad advice to persuade me that I had a solid chance in the governor's race. We don't hear that kind of candor from politicians very often. Pretty interesting. Buddy wants to jump right in. He wants to run again. I don't think there's any doubt that he wants to get back, back in the game. And, of course,
3: the public loves a reform center. So uh, I didn't know him. I never met him.
1: But I— I was one of the people who got a very negative impression uh, well, see, from his campaign. I, I, I didn't know him either. But what was interesting, and, and I don't know if um, maybe Martha m- more than you, Tamar, the, the, the frequent panelists on the show who are legislators said that they always thought Michael Williams was just a terrific person to deal with at the state capitol and were a little surprised by the tone of his uh, campaign. Martha, do you have an experience, any experiences with him?
2: I mean, I always found him to be easy to work with, but I was quite surprised until I found out who his consultant was. Oops, and yes, I think his um, his letter really should have been. I'm sorry, I took my consultant's advice, but He's, ultimately, yeah. your name is on it. I mean, I've had to make those decisions when I ran for Congress in 2012, and. And you have to, you know, your name is ultimately on everything. Very few people know the names of the consultants, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a it's a challenge. But, yeah, I agree with Buddy. I think um, he wants to run again. He's a, He is a young man. He has been successful in business up until now, and he has an opportunity. And he probably will start by getting back under the gold dome and running for something, you know, related to that. But we'll see.
1: Tamara, he, he said, in going against my gut lowering my standards, well, he certainly did that, I think Democrats and Republicans can agree, and allowing rationalization to creep in, I set the tone for the rest of my campaign. As I said tomorrow, we do not hear, even if the guy's thinking of running again, people talk that candidly about themselves. Well, I will no, say it, this. Uh, uh, let,
3: let, let, go, go ahead, ahead Martha. Go I, ahead. Will, I will say this to Martha, is that Martha, the, most of the mistakes I made politically is when I didn't follow my own gut and listen uh-huh. to these consultants. Tomorrow, and jump in. Don't even get me started on these consultants, Martha, <laughs> Because uh, I think I think that it's up to us as candidates to remember that we are the candidates, and we ought to be responsible for the decision. So we ought to follow our best judgment. Tomorrow.
0: One thing to, that we haven't really mentioned yet, you know, Buddy mentioned how how the public loves the case of a, a reformed sinner. But one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the fact that Michael Williams now has a record. Yeah, that's you know, right. He, ple- <laughs> he yeah. pleaded guilty in May to... Um, and making false reports with his computer servers, yeah, which he, he, he had alleged were stolen from his campaign office.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, So he's, he's not doing prison time or anything. He's a couple years probation, community service, a fine, that sort of thing. Um, but you know, that's that's no small well, and, thing. And
2: that's a good point, Tamar. And, and I think that um, it might not be running again. It might be getting back into business somewhere. I mean, you know, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be truthful, and people do love an unqualified apology because he didn't say, I'm sorry, but he said, these were my mistakes. And people like that.
1: Um, All right. Well, I just found that really fascinating, Buddy. Buddy, did you, as long as you brought it up, uh, did you work with consultants uh, did you work with national consultants typically, or were your consultant I, I remember your first race, but I'm trying to remember the consultants you worked with over the years. Were they local people who knew Georgia, or did you bring in the big guys from Washington? I had both. I had both. The times I used the local consultants
3: in the early campaigns, uh, we went by the seat of our pants, didn't have any money, didn't have any polls, and just went out there and just ran full steam. But the times, frankly, that— uh, I used the national consultants, I came to regret, even times I won. Why?
1: Why did you come to regret it?
3: Because they were more interested in the national issues and, frankly, uh, using nothing but TV and not doing what I thought would be the best way to run a campaign, is good
1: old-fashioned shoe leather. Martha, what about you? I'm sorry. Using the free media. Martha, when you uh, made your run, where I don't know who your consultant was, where that person came from. National, local, how'd you do it?
2: We did. I did both. Um, my general consultant was local, and um, then we, you know, for things like direct mail and things like that, because the 9th District, you don't really need to do television. Right. There was some targeted cable television, because you could target it in the area. But, you, you know, we couldn't afford Atlanta rates, and, you know, money was an issue, so... You know, you make those decisions. But I was always very aware that my name was on whatever I decided to do. It wasn't no one's going to know who the consultant is, right? You've got to know if you've got to be able to sleep at night and when you make those decisions
3: let me make one more point there's too much money in politics and when the candidate has more money the candidate is more has a tendency to be sought out by the national people and so forth and so on but sam nunn and i've discussed this he, the times we have had our greatest victories is when we ran by the seat of our pants and were flat broke
1: tomorrow i don't know if this has been in your experience as a journalist but it was mine back when i really covered campaigns uh, out there in the in the streets uh, an early warning sign that a candidate's uh, campaign might be failing was the first time that his or her consultant called you and said, now, this is off the record, but candidate X, they're not taking any of my advice. I'm trying to get them to do this. I'm trying to get them to do that. Instead, they're going off on there. And at that moment, I knew that they'd had polling that said that candidate was going to
0: lose. <laughs> sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. Listen, we are really just about out of time for uh, today's show it's been great uh, to have you tamar hallerman from the washington from your beat in in uh, uh washington for the ajc are you getting any time off during this break
0: yeah i'm actually heading to california later in the month
1: all right good for you good for you martha zoller love having you on from the studios of wdun thanks a lot for being here
2: it was great thank you bill
1: and buddy darden it's so good to have you back uh we need you more regularly. You've had a summer. You've been in and out of town all summer, so now you're back, right? I'm back, always available. All right. All right. Uh, before we leave you, I want to make a few announcements. Number one, remember that next Monday we're going to be in Augusta, August 12th. Uh, we'll be at the Jesse Norman School of the Arts at 7 o'clock. We'll be recording a show in front of a live audience. It'll air the next day, Tuesday. We, uh, we've been... We've been to Athens. We've been to Savannah. We've been to Macon. We've been to Cartersville. uh, We've been. Where else have we been? We've been all over the state. We've been to Columbus, but uh, we haven't been to uh, out there to Augusta. And we're really excited that we're finally going to get out and get a chance to meet many of you who are fans of Political Rewind. So please join us. Go to politicalrewind.org click on the link that will take you to tickets. They're free, but sign up so uh, we can uh, make sure we have a seat for you. The other thing I want to point out, Robert Jimison has done a really wonderful service for all of you who are paying attention, especially to the 6th and 7th district congressional races. He has now given every candidate in both districts a chance to record a brief message, a couple of minutes or so, about who they are, why they're running for Congress. And all of those are now posted on the GPB News website. So what a great way to go and get at least a little understanding of who these candidates are. Go to uh, gpbnews.org. You'll find all of Robert's good work there. That's it for us for today. Uh, We'll be back again with you on Friday. Tomorrow's our day off. So I'll see all of you at two o'clock on Friday. Take care.